All right, well, we continue with our conversation with Joseph, Tim, and Matt Swan. Part one, we discussed inerrancy. And part two, we will discuss canonicity, or how do we get the books in the Bible uh, that we have today? All right, so inerrancy is a big part of, of questions you have. I think you're also, like, you're a huge fan of the, the Maccabees, right? That was another? Yeah, huge, <laughs> huge or was it, or was fan. It, fourth Ezra? it is a well-known fact. <laughs> Maccabee was snubbed by Martin Luther, who had an agenda against Maccabee. The Maccabean revolt, man, it's some it's some crazy stuff. Like a like Judas Maccabeus, he had this hammer, and there was like storming of temples. It was like this little group of Jews. Anyways, it's a I'm with you, man. Now, truth be told, to I've actually never. I don't think I've ever read any books in the Apocrypha. I think I was at a Catholic church once, and I opened it up and was like, "They've got extra books. Does, do, do we know they have extra books?" Now, for a while, I was reading. Uh, I was reading through the uh, Common Book of Prayer. It's it's scripture reading plan, and it got to Ecclesiasticus, and I was like, Ecclesi-. First, I was like, Ecclesi-. "Why are they spelling it well, weird?" Uh, no, I was like, "Ecclesiastes <laughs> doesn't have thirty chapters, and it's, oh, this is a different book." And I didn't know. Um, I think there's a Judith, isn't there? A book of Judith is yeah. is yeah. yeah See, it was in Judith it was in the Common Book of Prayer. I was surprised. Oh man, I didn't know the Ang- Anglican Church they use. Yeah. Oh, interesting. So the question is, um, we're we're talking about canonicity or the canon. When we say canon, C A N O N, um, we're talking about the the books that are in Scripture. Um, the the Protestant Bible has sixty six books. So we're talking about how did canon also means rule. How how did this become? Uh, the accepted books, and so you you have some thoughts and some questions around that, and so what what are those? Yeah, and so it's you know we have a collection of writing, a lot of it comes from, and this is what I've discovered, and just to kind of catch people up or let them know kind of where my thoughts are coming from, the idea that there was the Hebrew Old Testament that didn't got converted to the Coney Greek translation, which was referred to as the Septuagint. And the Septuagint was the translation that was most quoted by early Christians, in fact, by Jesus. Um, And there are, as time went on, the Septuagint began to kind of expand with these books because they were just kind of get included. Um, And then subsequently, when... Judaism decided to revert back to the Hebrew Bible, there was kind of, that was the Jewish canon, and these other books kind of got orphaned. And so there was a real struggle as to what to do with these books. And the Catholics got together at the Council of Trent and decided these are our books of the Bible um, by applying these kind of rules that they had created to help them determine, you know, what is authentic, what is divinely inspired, and, and what is, you know, suspect. And they made the their, their, their canon, um, going kind of going through these uh, commentaries as well as religious texts, and you know also other writings that had been included kind of in in the Septuagint. And then with Martin Luther, when he came with his you know the Reformation, he began to say, okay, well here is here is the, the books that I think are including the canon. He had disagreements regarding several of these books, and the, seven in specific, um, and they were kind of, he placed them as an addendum and called them Apocrypha, which, you know, is less than um, Scripture. It's kind of a tier two, um, divinely inspired, but not the Word of God text. And then kind of moving forward, um, Protestants have kind of dropped all those books altogether. And if you pick up 
a modern Protestant Bible, you will not find the Apocrypha um, contained within that, um, the book. And so, you know, some of the things that I struggled with was, you know, we're taking, man is applying rules to possibly divinely inspired scripture because it doesn't meet these arbitrary rules that we determined. Um, seems like a big risk to take. Or even if friends, I have friends who are Catholic who, you know, read Maccabee, who read, you know, Tabit and, you know, and, and, you know, the, these other books and find wisdom in them and find inspiration. And I am not, you know, am I closing myself off to something? Yeah. I mean, that's the, the huge question in there is how did, how did we get the Bible that we have that, so, you know, we're holding a 66 book Bible. How did we get there? A couple of thoughts to that. One is, um, it's pretty clear. We, we know the Bible Jesus had the Hebrew Bible Jesus had. And there's a couple uh, a couple of examples of that. One is in Luke chapter 24, verses 44. So Jesus is with the, the two guys in Emmaus. Jesus kind of gives the rundown of the, how the whole Old Testament points to him. And this is, what Je- it's, this is what we read. So now Jesus said to them, these are my words, which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all the things that are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. What's important about that is the Hebrew canon, so Jewish people see their Bibles having three parts, is uh, the law, the Pentateuch, the prophets, and then the writings, which here is, is the Psalms. And so most scholars would say that's a sign that that threefold designation Jesus is referring to here, which is a sign that they had a, the Hebrew canon as we know it, as Protestants, the 39 books we have, is what Jesus had. The other verse that's, that I think shows this is Luke chapter 11, verse 50, where Jesus talks about uh, the blood of all the prophets shed since the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation. This is the part that matters. From the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who was killed between the altar and the house of God. So basically Jesus is talking about, he actually calls Abel a prophet, um, but two prophets killed, and he, he bookends them, Abel and Zechariah. Um, and what's important about that is Abel is the beginning of the Bible. He's the first first person killed, first person martyred. That's actually what Jesus is saying. The first person martyred for his faith, Genesis 4.8. And Zechariah is the last prophet martyred. Now, chronologically, that's not true. There were other prophets after Zechariah. That's not the last book um, or the last chronological book in the Bible. But it is the last part of the Hebrew Bible. So the Hebrew canon is ordered differently than our own. So the last book in the Hebrew Bible is Second Chronicles. And Second Chronicles ends with Zechariah dying. And so commentators point out Jesus is referring to the beginning and the end of what would have been the Hebrew Bible from Genesis to Second Chronicles. And then a third, a third piece of, of I think that's important is uh, there was a, a discovery about 40, 50 years ago of the Dead Sea Scrolls, which was a number of writings from around this time period. What we know from those writings is, again, the only book that's probably in question is Esther. It's not mentioned in the Dead, the Dead Sea Scrolls. Um, what is clear is commentaries were written on all the Hebrew texts, but not on the Apocrypha texts. The conclusion kind of from those writings has been the Hebrew canon that the 39 books that we have was probably a closed canon at the point of Jesus' life. And the works of Maccabees, Ezra, Tobit, those works were not considered scripture, even though they could have certainly wisdom or good teaching. And again, that's that's all based on history. I don't think that solves the question you're asking, which is, okay, well, how did how did we end up with that? 
what I think that does show is the canon Jesus understood in the Hebrew Bible was the 39 books we have now, and the Apocrypha that's included in most Catholic or Orthodox Bibles was not considered scripture by the Jewish authorities, the Jewish people, when Jesus walked on the earth. So I don't know if that's helpful. I find that really interesting, at least, if it's not helpful um, even. Especially the Luke, the, the Abel to Zechariah feels pretty compelling to me, that Jesus had, had understood the Hebrew canon from Genesis to Second Chronicles. Or is that a literary device like Alpha and the Omega, where he's simply highlighting the beginning and the end? Well, he is, but because it's the beginning and the end, it's a sign that that's the vision he sees of the closed canon of the Hebrew Bible. It begins with Abel and it ends with Zechariah said that did he <laughs> that's how that's how he saw it <laughs> i think so <laughs> okay <laughs> no and that's uh, and that's i've you know the commentary of the dead sea scrolls i've heard before and also included in the dead sea scrolls really you know, basically calendar events and things that were non-religious and so um and i guess it's it's and is that so important what is you know understood as this is you know the old testament that was recognized you know by the hebrews uh, the jewish the jews at the time versus are we closing ourselves off to something by you know saying well we're just going to completely exclude this book of you know these these collections of writings that obviously had some importance due to their persistence Right. Because, I mean, that's one of the arguments of Christianity as a faith is its persistence. That's, you know, and so, you know, these these books that, you know, are persistent. Have we as Protestants done ourselves a disservice by getting rid of the Apocrypha, lost an opportunity to receive you know some kind of insight? Yeah, my my thought on that and that kind of gets into bringing up, you know, why did why do the Catholics have that in their Bible and and we don't and. That really, I think, gets at the heart of the Reformation. Why? Why did Luther look at the Apocrypha and say this? This isn't it. And and really, it goes. The the reason why it goes to the heart is because it brings about the question of authority, right? The big thing of um, the Reformation. I don't know if if this language is familiar to you guys sitting here and listening. Um, of sola scriptura, right? The the ultimate authority is God who has spoken in his word. That was a different, and still is, a different conception than uh, the Catholic Church. The Catholic Church places the authority of the church right next to, on the same level as, as the word of God. And, and what comes with that is that they had, their, their position towards the canon is that the church is the one who gets to create the canon. The church is the one who um, gets to identify what is canon. And the reason why that's different than the Reformation is that the Reformation is, is claiming that, no, the, the canon is a self-authenticating thing it, because it is the Word of God itself. The church doesn't create the canon. The canon was given to the church. The books of the Bible were given to the church. Now, that may sound like some mumbo-jumbo. What, what does that actually mean? When you think about, say, the New, the New Testament, the canon or or what actually is at the center of of the new testament is is Jesus what he said and the gospel that he gave and then his passing that on to the apostles what the what the early church viewed as as the word of god or bearing a scripture you see this in first peter he refers to paul's letters as as among the scriptures the the gospels were treated as 
as at its earliest times as scripture. And the reason why is because it's relationship to Jesus, right? That Jesus, what's recorded in the gospels are the words of Jesus, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And then the gospel had been passed on to his apostles. They were given apostolic authority to then share that. So if you think of John 14 and 16, that the spirit of God is given to them in order that that the Spirit would remind them and bring to things to mind all that he had said. The early church didn't create the canon, but rather recognized what was already there. The reason why that is important, as debates went on, there was not questions of what should be put in. It was just a question of what should be taken out. For example, Hebrews was debated because it didn't have an author's name. I hope this, I hope this is helping make the case that when, when Luther looks back, I mean, this is as early, as early as I think the 4th century, I wish I had my notes down, as early as the 4th century, there was a complete canon that is what we have here. But as early as Irenaeus, I mean, there was a generally agreed upon idea of what Old Testament scriptures were, the Hebrew scriptures, and the New Testament. And the only reason why they're authoritative is because they bear the authority of Jesus. And you know, that, that was the metric. Was it either from the words of Jesus or his apostles or those working with the apostles? And canon refers to rule. And basically that just means the rule of faith. That, that was a term thrown around in the early church. Does it adhere to the rule of faith? What has been accepted as the authority of Jesus given to the church through these, through these writings? So that, that's like the key difference at the Reformation is who, who has authority to make the canon? Well, the Catholic Church says the church does. And the Reformation said, no, it's, it's from Jesus. That's, I think that's, I absolutely hear what you're saying. I yeah. think that makes a lot of sense. I think it's interesting because talking about the authority that the Protestant or, you know, Luther had said that the Bible becomes the authority and not the church and the traditions. And that's, I think that's a big difference of why, you know, we eliminated the priesthood, why, you know, we don't have a pope as this this big change. But it's interesting, too, because contained in that Chicago statement says, is you just, you know, you read a while back where it says on all matters, not just pertaining to faith and the practice of, of religion, which is important because the Catholic state that the pope is the divine authority and, you know, sanctum. Um, on only on matters of faith and the practice of religion, and that's the the way that they can say, yeah, there's been some crazy popes who've done a lot of stuff that's horrible, but that's because it didn't have to do with the religion. Which, and this would be interesting to hear your guys' thoughts on it's the idea of elimination of the priesthood. Whether that's are we missing something there? First Peter, we're all priests. No, <laughs> yeah, priesthood of the believer. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, yeah, some of us really are really question. lousy priests. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Me included. So, but I just think, I think that is one of the dangers of Protestantism, though, that we, we lack guidance a lot of times because it's unless, you know, the idea that, and there's this strong belief, especially with the younger generation. That was my belief for a long time was if I have the Bible and I have a relationship with God, that's it. That's enough. And that's, that's all I need because priesthood of the believer, I'm my own priest. God revealed himself through the scripture and that's all I need. You know, but that, that, you know, I was convicted because, you know, I, uh, a pastor say, listen, that model of faith is evident nowhere in the New Testament, you know, and it's the fellowship of the believer. No, know? I'm totally with you. I, I'll say something that, that could get me fired at this church, which is that I don't think it's good to remove the secular-secular divide. 
I think I think there's actually something good to that, and that's something that that Catholics do well. Now I'm hope you know it, we're so deep in this thing. I don't know if anyone's listening anymore. But <laughs> yes, Tom uh, certainly didn't make it. This uh, far. No, <laughs> <laughs> no. But, and well, I think even uh, you know Matt, what you were saying, even why we called this class how to read our Bible and not how to read your Bible. I think even like some of the problem with inerrancy is that I've got my Bible. I've it's my authority, and it's like, well, this is. This is actually God's Bible. It's His Word. We do not possess it, and we sit under it. And anyone who, especially anyone who walks over the King James and is like, "Man, this is my this is, that's the even best based on the best Greek text anyway." Uh, but that's that's a totally you know boring seminary debate. But like once you start saying like, "This is my authority," um, or "This is me and my Bible," and you just reject all of church history, all of the the church. Speaking into that, yeah, you're gonna have you're gonna have problems, and I think that's where inerrancy often does move into to abuse or to being mistreated. Well, I, I think it's probably time for us to close up this conversation. There's still so many things that that we didn't get to, and um, and actually, Matt, I want to give you since you're a guest, and uh, not to say this was a two v one, but in a certain sense, I, I want to be able to give you the final word, and you can you can close our podcast. But I just want to affirm. Some essential things that we said, which is number one, if you're questioning this, then um, you're in a good place because this stuff is hard to understand and, and work through. And there's a lot of history, a lot of scholarship to wade through. And so it's legitimate to question that. And there, there are saints, uh, again, like C.S. Lewis, who, who wouldn't hold to the view of Scripture uh, completely as we do in the EFCA, and yet he's still a saint. He's a member of, of the body. And so to to continue to affirm people um, that this does not exclude you from our church. Um, so I'm really grateful, Matt, that that you were on. But I'll let you if you have any any final words that you want to say. And I appreciate it, and, and I yeah. think it's been a good conversation. I think it's you know it's important to realize that it's a growth, it's a challenge in his relationship, and that's to struggle is to attempt to understand. Um, and you know, there's a famous line that uh, it's very close to my heart is that, you know, comfort and growth can't coexist in the same space. And so I think that's, you know, when, when you are nervous about what it is that you believe, when you question, you know, is this the right thing? Am I thinking the right thing? Do I believe this? I think what you're doing is you're growing, you're proving to yourself, you know, that this is, I'm challenging my faith. And I, I would see that as a reason to continue to lean into your faith and not to walk away from it. It's it's hard to know what is true and what is not. There are things that you know are true and have been proven. And often it comes back to that question that I often ask myself is, does this affect my core belief? And, you know, the love your neighbor as yourself and the rest of it is in details. But important, but still not to be brushed aside. So to end, I'll quote the movie Rudy. There's only two things I know. One, there is a God. Two, I'm not him. Until next time.